Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Shades of Grey. Our very special guest today is my good friend and also business partner, Brett Lee Limer. Now, I don't think Brett needs much introduction since he's extremely well-known in the fintech circle. And if you were ever on social media, you would definitely have come across his tweets, his writing, and also his Brett's lightning. Let's start off a little bit with your background and your journey. I know when we first met, I like to call you the banker with a conscience. Um, and I think others do as well. So let's start with that. Yeah, I, I could certainly appreciate people calling me this uh, banker with a conscience. But uh, I never really considered myself a banker. So uh, during my 25-year career, I've always sort of recoiled from that, that word. But I uh, appreciate the, the conscience part because I think everybody needs to uh, feel that they're part of something a little bit bigger, especially in banking. Uh, in fact, more times than not, I'd, I'd align myself with these corporate rebels uh, that are trying to make positive changes to business models from within the enterprise. You know, we have to stand on the side of the consumer and develop a way to do business that, that benefits society more than any particular bottom line. And again, I think in banking, it's, it's absolutely critical that we think more broadly. It's, it's really about focusing on impact and inclusion across demographic, economic, gender, and other societal spectrums. And we, we have to really think about it a, a long time frame, because in that long time frame, that's where the magic happens. Because too many corporate strategies are for short-term gain and, and lack real empathy for the needs of individuals. So I, I, I just have always fought for, for that, um, because I think it really needs to change. And this goes really for any industry vertical, but that's, it's especially true for banking. And, and kind of getting back to the banking part, I mean, for people that don't know much about my background, I'd like to say that the roots of my career were probably born in Berkeley, or at least uh, when I went to UC Berkeley. Because living in the Bay Area is, is sort of like a special place, but living in such a progressive city within such a progressive part of the country um, for half of my life, at least, it really colored my lens of how I saw the financial services industry, uh, the industry that, for the most part, I would call home for most of my career. And so in that sense, my career has really covered these, these three circles that, that have always seemed to be interwoven. A um, big part of my career was been working with data and predictive models and trying to understand consumer behavior and also uh, working within banks and credit unions, serving very, very different communities, um, very small to, to very large and global. And then finally, working with startups, uh, corporate venture teams and innovation efforts across the enterprise. So, you know, because of those those three circles, I would say that leading change has always been part of my DNA. Um, my last enterprise role for you know, how a lot of people know me was at, when I was recruited to build and run the U.S. innovation team in Banco Santander. Always been heavily involved in the fintech ecosystem, uh, and that has really helped perspective um, on the areas in financial services that really have had a broader impact. And since leaving something there, I've, I've run a fintech strategy group. I've helped several venture teams. I've advised startups, corporates, conferences, and now co-founding a new consulting group in unconventional ventures to really improve opportunities and outcomes for everyone served throughout the industry. So regardless of which part I'm working on at any given time, I, I, I simply want to make banking better. I want to infect more people within the industry with a conscience. So, so that I'm fine with that being my legacy. Great. Thanks for that, Brad. Um, I understand you've been living in the cloud for the last uh, few months, <laughs> uh, traveling across, across different parts of the world. So what were the key takeaways and uh, were there any surprising factors that, uh, that you stumbled upon? 
Yeah, you know, I, I've always been part of an airline family. I like to say I was an airline brat. My dad worked for United for 37 years, um, so I've been fortunate to travel a lot. Uh, but most of my travel, I would say the last couple of decades, has been through the U.S. and Europe and sort of traditional, um, you know, Western paths. But this year, I was fortunate to travel a lot more east, uh, including Singapore and Hong Kong and Shanghai and Hangzhou and Tokyo and other places in between. Um, the few things that, I, that really stood out, I'd say it's very apparent uh, that the next financial services business model is already here. It's in the east and it's in the form of these super apps where every element of banking falls into the background. I remember trying to figure out how to pay a taxi and uh, you could do everything with these new apps. So payments and services through WeChat, Alipay are just, they're becoming the new normal. And I think super apps will sort of be part of our future uh, in every geography. And when you think about the super apps, you know, the amount of payment that goes through those two applications alone is simply phenomenal. So if you look at some of the stats from this past year, Tencent and Financial represented 22 trillion U.S. dollars in mobile payments. That's 98% of the Chinese mobile payment market. And that's more than the entire world's debit and credit card payment volume, which is just mind-blowing, right? So think about like how big a volume that is just in China with those two companies. Now, consider that, that more and more of Chinese commercial activity, food delivery, travel, service bookings, um, taxi services, like I was saying, and, and even more financial services like savings and investment, that these are going through these applications every single day. So with nearly 1.4 billion people, this market is just getting started domestically, and increasingly it's being exported to other markets. So again, there's so much potential there. I'd say the other apparent issues um, facing Asian consumers is they're not really all that different than what we are in the West, right? I still see challenges for banks and policymakers when it comes to the basics, food, water, and shelter. And, you know, the more people throughout the world are, are starting to aspire to, to a Western lifestyle that the U.S. and Western Europe have, you know, really enjoyed over the last 50, 70 years. What we eat, what we buy, how we live, um, this rapid shift away from a savings culture to a consumption culture is going to be geared for especially like the Chinese market to acquire consumer goods like cars and luxury items and this tremendous middle class that's developing. But then you could start to see the same problems that have plagued the West around healthy lifestyles, uh, healthcare costs, increased things like obesity, cost of living, um, especially related to housing in markets like uh, Hong Kong and Shanghai, a growing income inequality and so much more. So you could think about the Western lifestyle that's being exported as a contagion in a way. Uh, and while it brings a life of, say, luxury to, to some, and in the case of China, you know, four or 500 million people in the end, it's apparent in countries where greater populations are at stake that there's even more people left behind. So I think this is why the West must understand the relationship between the citizens and the government of countries like China in that context. And I, I would just implore people to, to travel more and appreciate the way each society is addressing these issues over time. And we need to learn from the best remedies. So I would, I would end with, you know, my sort of last point of, well, I, I always love um, travel in, in the way that we find similarity of people and, and what they need, because the more you travel, I think the, the more humans you walk or you, the humans that you meet from all walks of life, you, you sit back and reflect on how small the planet really can be. You uh, can sit there and enjoy a song or a work of art with strangers or be in a business meeting. And um, you, you just see all these commonalities between what you're striving for. You could be in a cafe and give a knowing look to someone who 
can reflect uh, how good an egg tart is or how good um, a particular coffee might be or how impressive uh, a modern city like Shanghai could be with an amazing nighttime light show. Uh, there's something about like every single large Asian city, they have to kind of show off their buildings and it's, it's really interesting, but it's something that everyone can appreciate. And so while the backdrop of these cities may be different, each country is a unique reflection of its culture, its people and its roots of their own. So it's, it's simultaneously moving and very humbling to think about how the world really all fits together. Yeah, so Brett, I think, you know, after your travel, you and I had spoken a little bit about perhaps some of the cultural differences, the social differences, if you will, between um, especially the different countries that you were speaking at in China versus Tokyo and Hong Kong. Um, what are some of the some of the things that made a lasting impression with you? Yeah, I think that the physical cities and the sheer amount of people across those cities I visited um, was one of the most surprising things, especially in China. You weren't prepared for how modern these cities are until you really spend a week in them. And, you know, while Tokyo felt a lot less changed from the city I visited as a child, because I think the skyline is so much uh, similar, you know, there's not these tremendously high 90, 100-story buildings. Hong Kong, before the handover, when I visited there as a child uh, from the handover from Great Britain, was not the same city I visited this past October at Finnevate. And that's not just because of policy changes and immigration and the time it takes to get a visa, but the physical transformation of the city is so much different than a city like Tokyo. There's so much construction going on in all of China. Uh, there's been probably more in the past decade than the world has ever seen. So the skyscrapers going up for what looks like miles and the trains and the airports and the public spaces, it's really just incredibly impressive. So that really stood out. Um, Outside of that, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the different level of service between these cultures. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I think there's a lot of lessons that um, can be learned from the West, for, for mainland China especially. And I think there's many lessons to be learned from the East, um, for the West, especially from Japan, which I think is probably the most service-oriented culture I've ever experienced. So just in general, these, these trips really left a lasting impression about the differences and the similarities. And uh, talking about Japan, Brad, uh, there's a stat which is about by 2030, we're going to have about 28% of uh, the population in Japan going to be more than 65 years and older uh, folks. Um, and uh, it's going to be an ultra-aged nation, as they call it. So what, 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 what do you think are the opportunities and challenges that that uh, that uh, that it throws to the innovation ecosystem. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of Japan as one of the oldest nations um, because you also have to equally be impressed by their ongoing success with you know, achieving long-term healthy lifestyles and longevity. I think the reason for Japan's growing aging population is because they're high life expectancy, right? So a few years back, um, I believe it was Japan hit 85 years on average. Um, a little under 82 for men and I think almost 89 for, for women. And this will be apparently be eclipsed by Spain by 2040, which I find kind of surprising. But, uh, you know, getting back to Japan, Japan is facing this critical time in its history, I think, where, where its population is actually shrinking. And there's no other country, I think, that is facing this other than perhaps Russia uh, and for different reasons. So it's it, it has no way to replace that that. 27, 28% that is over 65 because they're not seeing 
a replacement of those people through fertility rates. So their population by 2050 is going to go from 127 million people now to 107 million. And to compare, you know, to my home market in the U.S., our population is expected to grow during that time from 321 million to 398 million. So in, in Japan, we're going to see 28% over 65, and that's going to grow. But in the U.S., we're going to go from 14% of the population over 65 now to 22%. And while that seems like a big jump, the problem will be worse in places like the U.K. and Germany and France and Italy. And in China, they're going to experience this due to the one-child policy and the lasting impact that that has had on the way that people really view having children. And China's going to go from, I think, what, a little under 1.4 billion now to 1.3 billion in 2050. And you think, well, that's not a huge deal, but the portion of Chinese population over 65 is going to grow from 10% to 27%. So when you look at Japan and you look at other countries, you can see it's a, it's a really global issue. And for Japan, you know, it also has a little bit to do with curbing immigration um, and that higher fertility rate I talked about. It, it comes from, you know, mixing cultures um, when you add a lot of immigrants coming in. In, in Japan, only 1% of people living there are foreign born. And that's, you know, compared to like 16% in the U.S. So they're now having policy debates about letting more people live there on five-year service visas in order to help care for their aging population, which I find really interesting. They're also very, very serious about addressing the needs of aging populations through technology and innovation. So during my, my visit to Tokyo, I visited with startups and universities and corporates, but I also spent time with both the Tokyo Metropolitan Government and with um, Takuya Harai, who's the new Japanese Minister for Information Technology, Science, Technology, and Space Policy. Um, really, really interesting guy, loves technology and loves to talk about it. Um, but they are all working on public-private solutions that are really geared toward ensuring uh, the health and wellness of their people. And they're looking to provide capital in more ways that global startups can help be part of these solutions. So I think more countries need to know that, that Japan is not just serious about um, helping their own needs and their own people, but they're open to external ideas. Uh, and I think that, that we should look at you know, that market as a critical test bed for innovation geared toward what's becoming really a global challenge. We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking, information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and explain complex ideas innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. And the interesting thing, though, is a lot of times we forget that we all get old, right? So a, a colleague of mine used to tell me, the minute we were born, we're all getting older. So it is a fact, um, you know, but what I don't, understand i guess you know uh, you know being in it and looking at it from the outside is why aren't we seeing more people doing more things to tackle challenges i, I like seeing you know what you're, what you are talking about the efforts from japan and you know perhaps some of the government trying to put their brains together to figure out instead of looking at it as a, as a burden as an opportunity and what can we do about it and create innovative solutions so what's your take on that uh, I'd, I'd like to think that we're starting to tackle the challenge because, you know, governments and 
corporates are trying to understand how to how to go into the future, and this is going to be a huge issue. So, you know, collectively, we're certainly living longer. We're, we're living more productive lives. We need to focus on making those lives increasingly productive and meaningful. Uh, living doesn't end at retirement like I think it once used to. Um, and so the societal focus should not be on, on just, you know, those that are millennials. They need to be increasingly on people that are over 60. I love this oh, quote. Well, yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, let's, let's focus on the people without money and focus on the people that are a smaller population now. Um, There's this quote that, that I read recently from, from John F. Kennedy. And he said this in February of 63, he said, it is not enough for a great nation merely to have added new years to life. Our objective must also be to add new life to those years. Uh, We really, really need to, understand that not only do people have more time in retirement, but that less people are retiring in a standard age. Uh, We need to encourage more public private efforts to focus on those that are over 60 because 60 is kind of the new 40. We need to help inspire healthier lifestyles and lifelong wellness, both physical, emotional. We need to find, you know, find ways to get people to be more independent past this age of 60 and 70 and 80. Um, If we get back to banking a little bit, you know, according to this, 2016 study on longevity, Americans um, over 50 account for 7.6 trillion in direct spending and related economic activity. So this ARP study said that, that that figure surpasses the GDP of every nation except for the U.S. and China. I mean, $7.6 trillion. That's incredible. Um, so these are the people that have the money, right? Um, And as people work longer, this financial influence for those over 60 is only going to increase. So, you know, if I, if I know anything about uh, the U S and where the global trends are going, I would say that corporates aren't going to ignore this figure for very long, Uh, especially those in financial services who find a way to, I think, make, make a dollar uh, as as often as they can. So I think we're, we're starting to see more marketplaces arise for the needs of older citizens Uh, and startups in a lot of areas are leading that charge. So let's let's all focus on broader efforts to make the last 30, 40 or more years uh, really the best in everyone's life. Brad, you've uh, uh, led the team in the U.S. for uh, Banco uh, Santander. And uh, since you've been involved in the startup space, innovation space across the globe, you're a known fintech uh, person. Um, the uh, the question I have is what how how do these two um, compare these two uh, carry tracks compare what do you have uh, to say for our listeners? Yeah, so so like you said, I, I developed an innovation function in this two trillion dollar global bank that has one hundred and forty million customers, and uh, I, I think that you know corporate innovation and strategy teams are, are almost requirements in today's global marketplace. Um, this is regardless of which industry we're really talking about, right? So good ideas are, are always sort of easy to find or at least easy to come up with. You know, we could, we'd say I want to end global poverty or something like that, but um, that, that in itself is, is not a solution. It takes a lot of work across the enterprise um, to deploy the best ideas and have an impact for, for customers, but more importantly on society as a whole. Um, so for startups, especially in regard to financial services, banking, I think you need to, to be embedded uh, in this external ecosystem to learn what's going on what's working, how emerging technology is being deployed and, and how we bring the solutions into the enterprise. And so that's part of why I said I was kind of 
always aligned with corporate rebels because, you know, 10 years ago, it was very uncommon to, to sort of bring these ideas from the outside in. Um, when you look at, you know, corporate venture, um, CB Insights said that, that corporate venture now represents about $31, $32 billion in investments across oh, almost 2,000 deals um, in 2017, and it's only growing. So if, if corporations are investing in startups and now participate in about 20% of global venture activity, you, you start to see more and more companies have this corporate investment arm and these innovation teams. Three quarters of Fortune 100 companies have an investment arm. And there were 550 global corporate venture teams actively investing last year. So it's not really corporate innovation versus startups. I think it's, it's a blend of both in my mind. And if we go back and tie in addressing the needs of an aging population, this um, shades of gray that you guys call it, it's more than sort of this public private university enterprise startup combination. It needs to take the best ideas and it needs to learn from them and, and really iterate uh, more broadly. So that's what I think we need the most along with this, this sort of level of empathy to realize it's, it's really in everyone's best interest to um, find solutions for, for this market. Yeah, in, indeed. And, you know, we talk about different opportunities, right? Like the figure that you um, quoted is the longevity economy, the size of um, how much people over the age of 50 are spending in the U.S. And obviously the figure for globally is even much larger than that. So on that same theme, when we look at, um, you know, aging societies, we look at people getting older and then we look at East versus West, um, as we always call it, where are some of the opportunities for startups to focus on? Yeah, I think the challenge of East versus West in regard to those opportunities um, is really one of scale. You know, while 22% of nearly 400 million people in the U.S. being over 60 um, by 2050 is a big number, it's really dwarfed right, by 27% of 1.3 billion in China. So startups focusing on health and wellness, physical activity, health tracking, they, they seem to be a natural fit for the space and for this, this sort of challenge. Um, and, and other ones, you know, like monitoring financial data that you may not think about um, to ensure that there's not occurrences of elder abuse at scale in these populations. Or those that deploy voice technology to connect families and ensure connectivity instead of loneliness or isolation for people that are seniors. So I think in Japan and, and in other markets, they're focused on automation, robotics, ways to ensure that, you know, cleaning someone's house or getting prescriptions or groceries um, delivered are accomplished much more efficiently and really are taking care of people in the way that human caregivers do now. So we're, we're seeing a lot of these things be addressed through technology. Uh, we see mobility through autonomous vehicles and transit systems being a focus, especially in Japan. And, you know, it's, it's, something to, to think about because aging societies are going to be far more active than they were in the past. And, and while we think about, you know, going down and going to the store as a simple task uh, for someone that has mobility issues, um, you know, it, it's more of a challenge and having someone just be able to summon a car or summon a, a, a service delivery just on the fly, I think is uh, critically important. We, we must remember that, you know, an 80 year old of today was not the same 80 year old of 50 years ago nor will it be 50 years in the future. So I expect a lot more of emerging technologies um, and research and development, venture capital, 
And, and really the focus of thousands of startups are going to go in the space, I think, in the decades to come. So as societies like Japan and China age more quickly, deploying the solutions at scale to improve our societies are going to be crucial test beds as more countries experience the, the adventures of uh, longer lives, if you will. So talk, talking about um, venture capital and, uh, uh, and unconventional ventures that you run, um, what, what are your vision? What is your vision for un- unconventional ventures? Are you, are you planning to be a fund? Uh, what are your thoughts? What does your roadmap look like? Yeah, well, I don't necessarily see us becoming a venture fund directly. Uh, we're actively advising and sourcing startups for traditional and corporate venture teams, I'd say. Um, and unconventional ventures is focused on, on driving innovation to improve systematic financial wellness. I think we're really passionate about making things far more inclusive. Uh, we connect founders to funders. We provide mentorship to entrepreneurs. We offer strategic advisory services to a broad set of corporates where we help them navigate, uh, contextualize, and diversify their business models in order to prepare for the changes ahead, including this reality that our societies are aging. Overall, I think I would say our goal is to broaden opportunities for diversity within the ecosystem, the inclusion that I talked throughout this, and our work with a variety of startups, I think, just does that fact. Um, So trying to make everything better for everyone, because I don't believe that we should be building for segments like millennials or even people that are aging. We need to build for everyone. So let's let's do it together and make, make the industry better. I absolutely agree. And one um, final tidbit, if you will, um, that also I don't think we talk much about is um, the logo for our company and conventional ventures. Um, there's a little story behind it. It's um, a dandelion, and it was actually Brad's idea um, because much like the seeds from Humble Dandelions, um, our vision is that we want to be the catalyst for ideas to take hold. Um, and we believe that corporations can actually do well while doing good. So um, much to look forward to. And uh, thank you so much, Brad, for joining us today. Uh, thank you for giving me time to share my views. <laughs>